Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. 1 Thessalonians, Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, thanking you for your goodness and blessings. Please continue to help us to understand the things that are of you in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, the epistles are inspired commentary. We read the rest of the Bible through the apostles of the apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles. There were documents in the early church which tried to consolidate apostolic doctrine, like the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermes, things like this. The line of faith emerged from the apostles' teaching to the early fathers. Came distorted later on, but initially it was a good idea. We look at the rest of Scripture through the prism of the teaching of the apostles. If there's any typology, midrash, or allegory in the epistles, it either explains it or it assumes the readers know what it means. We look at the complicated in light of the direct and straightforward. And as we saw in our earlier session, the distinction between the wrath of Satan, the philipsis, and the wrath of God. As we looked at also in Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul makes that same distinction. The philipsis, they were suffering the wrath of Satan, but they would be kept from the wrath of God. What you see in the epistles is what you see in the Olivet Discourse, and it helps us to understand Revelation. Again, the basic problem that pre-trib people have is that they are confusing the wrath of Satan with the wrath of God. David Parson, to my understanding, has a similar position to my own as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But before we had already suffered and had been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Now, it's interesting that the word here for opposition, it means conflict, struggle, in the original Greek. For hesitation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But among you we proved to be gentle, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also of our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you as believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you may walk in a manner, in the manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
For you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? It is not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming, for you are our glory and joy. In verse 19, he talks about the coming. That is not the last time in the book he does that. He continues talking about the coming in the following chapters as well. No chapter divisions in the original text, of course. And again, this word, as we looked at last night, is parousia. Parousia. Now, once again in this chapter, he's drawing the distinction between the affliction, the philipsis, the opposition, the persecution he suffers at the hands of men as opposed to the wrath of God. Okay? Same idea, that distinction being made. Now, obviously, he's talking here about boldness. But he didn't come bold by way of deceit. He came bold really wanting these people to be saved and to be grounded in their faith. As we talked about, he probably had no more than a few weeks with these people and then wrote them from Corinth. They didn't have a, a big Jewish community of believers who, who got saved to, to, to take over the leadership in, in, in a fast way as happened in other cities. These were people who basically heard the gospel and heard a lot of Bible teaching in a very concise period of time. And then they were left to it. Paul had to get out of there. And now he's writing these two epistles to them back to back. Once again, look what he's saying. Why does he keep talking about we came with right motives? Now you have right motives, wrong motives, and impure motives. Impure motives means a mixture of flesh and spirit or something right and something wrong. Impure motives. If a parent corrects their child, say you smack your kid, right? How much of that is a pure motive, wanting to correct the kid, and how much of it is you just venting off your own frustration by taking it out on the kid? You know what I'm saying? There's a mixture. That's what the Greek word impurity usually means, a mixture of flesh and spirit. People will tell you things like, there's a laughing thing. Well, it's a mixture of good and bad. Well, the fact that it's a mixture tells you it's not good. The Hebrews could not make a garment of woolen flax. God hated the mixture. Impurity means, that's exactly what purity, impurity means. The mixture. We're told that false teaching in Peter's, in Peter's epistle, false teaching is a mixture, is parasozusin, a laying truth next to error. The very fact that it's a mixture tells you it's not of God. Mormonism has a mixture of deception and truth. Jehovah's Witness has a mixture of deception and truth. Roman Catholicism has a mixture of deception and truth. The very fact that there is a mixture tells you it's not God. God is pure, and he wants his church pure. Now again, the focus here is eschatological. The early Christians allowed for the fact that Jesus may not come in their lifetime, but expected he would. They allowed for the fact he may not come in their lifetime, but expected he would. When the last apostle was left alive, John as an old man, the church required another exhortation. That is part of the reason for the book of Revelation. 
The apostles are all dead. Only John is alive. He's 90 plus, which is an extremely old age for, the, for, for that time in history. And uh, the people bewildered. Where was Jesus? We thought he was coming. The church needed to be reassured that he was still coming quickly. Now, we'll come back to that bit about coming quickly. It's on other tapes, but we'll touch on it in a moment. Let's look at this. There were obviously people coming with wrong motives. There were obviously people preaching and even speaking boldly. But it was in verse 5 a pretext for greed. God is the witness that Paul was not like that. He cared about these people. I was just giving something. The Walsall Appetizer. There's a little fellowship associated with Moriel down in Walsall. And I got the original stuff. This is the headline of the local paper in Walsall. Walsall people who are attending a debt-busting religious rally this weekend are being warned to be skeptical after leaflets were sent out saying organizers would burn their bills and pray that they will all be paid off in full. The event headed by American evangelists. Now, this guy calls himself an evangelist. Now, Paul says he was evangelizing. Evangel comes from the Greek word evangelion, the Hebrew besor, gospel. He's claiming to preach the gospel now. Take place at Blockswitch Leisure Center and says it will teach people the biblical way to get out of debt, as well as promising to pay 500 pounds off one person's debt, etc. I've got this. The original thing he sent out to these people. He says, first take a sticker, paid, and put it on each bill you have. Okay? It's important that you see your bill paid by faith. <laughs> then send it to us and we'll burn it. Step two. Step three, must take the step in faith. You'll reap tenfold. So if your bill, so if you have a mortgage of 50,000, send us five. <laughs> God, multiply it back tenfold. And there's people who will do it. And there's churches who will advertise it. Now, we stood up, and you know, we were sued by Elam and so on because we opposed this kind of stuff. We went to those court, well, nearly to court and then arbitration over this kind of thing, fighting to, fighting to stop the leading Pentecostal church in this country from promoting this man. I watched him on TV and in America some months ago, and he said, he had the King James Bible, and he said, let's talk about the widow's might. It says she gave from her want. She gave because she wanted something. <laughs> and this is accepted. Now, this is demonic. It is total lies from hell. What is his motive? The opposite of what Paul said. Paul was an evangelist who said I didn't come for any pretext for greed. I didn't want your money. I don't want your money. I wanted you saved. These are not new issues. These kinds of people were around in the early church, understand? But because this is an eschatological, there's an eschatological flavor to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the hint is, look out in the last days. A pretext for greed. Thank you, Tony, for that. Yeah? Saint and the Christian Herald, so-called. Now, again, what, what if you were an unperson, what would you think if you saw this? Now, this is the devil. This man is from the devil. John Abazzini is from the devil. And people who promote him are from the devil. This is just evil. Paul warns about this. He nurtures these people. 
he knew he'd have a very short time with them. He uses the imagery of a mother who's going to have to give the baby over for adoption. Or let the kid fend for itself after a very short time. What would that mother do with that baby? No, it was only going to be mine for a short time. <laughs> would invest everything. She would invest everything she had in that baby. Everything she had, every ounce of everything she had would be invested in that baby. Well, that's the kind of comparison Paul is making. I can only be there for a short time because of the persecution. I'm going to invest everything I can to get you people grounded in Jesus to be ready for the day of his coming. What a motive. He compared his love for the churches and the people who were saved in his ministry with the, with, with the love a mother would have for a newborn baby. And then he keeps talking. Notice how Paul was gentle to the people as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you. How he could be so gentle with these pagans but how he could be so angry with the people who would mislead and pervert the same gospel. Now, some have often said, well, Paul says, as long as the gospel is being preached, what's the difference? Let God deal with them. That's true. If the gospel was being preached, they wouldn't have a problem. But this is not the gospel. <laughs> you understand? It's not the gospel. Then he goes on saying something else. He talks about how these non-Jews would be people who came to suffer the way the Jews did in verses 14 through 16. In other words, the same as the Jews were rejected by their own people and how their own religious leaders incited the people against the apostles. Now the same thing would happen among the Gentiles. And in time, we know it was the Greco-Roman civilization and its pagan religion that was more violent and more murderous towards the people of the Lord than even the Jews were. Much more. Those terrible emperors like Severus, Septimus Severus and Marcus Aurelius and these Diocletian, these men were demon-possessed madmen. These emperors were actually, they were Edia Means, Adolf Hitler's, Joseph Stalin's, that's the kind of people they were. The kind of hatred Hitler had for Jews and gypsies, that's the way that they had a hatred for Christians. They were just demon-possessed madmen. The same thing that the Jewish believers experienced would now happen to the Gentile Christians. Now, in chapter 1, we looked at first that you are like us and like Christ. Christ suffers. His true disciples, the apostles, suffered. Then the Jews who believed in him suffered, but then the Gentiles suffered. This ellipsis. But it begins with Jesus. He never expects us to go through anything that he's not gone through himself and that he's not prepared to go through with us. And he uses this and he builds up to the return of Jesus. Verse 19. That's what he's aiming for. Therefore... When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Notice in verse 9 of chapter 2, he calls it the gospel of God. In chapter 3, verse 2, the gospel of Christ. This points to the deity of Jesus, but it's what we talked about today, how different words for the gospel, it's all the same gospel, 
but they reflect different aspects of what it is. Okay? Same gospel. Gospel of the kingdom, gospel of Christ, gospel of peace. Same gospel, but different aspects of the same thing. But now he begins getting into the real last day stuff. See that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. Ellipsis. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Indeed, we were with you. We kept telling you in advance we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. So the story continues. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. Now again, we have no chapter division in the original text. He's worried about the tempter. Notice at chapter 2, verse 18, he calls him Satan. But then he calls him, in chapter 3, the tempter. Again, it's the same person. But the two different names describe different aspects of what he is and how he operates. Satan hindered us. Now, today you have people with two or more agree we can claim this, and Satan, we bind you. What do these silly, silly people know that Paul didn't? This is just ignorance. At best, it is ignorance. That Paul, if that was all it took, two or more agreeing and binding in Satan, and we can, you're not going to stop us from doing this, we command it. We, what do they know that Paul didn't? You see the silliness that's going on today. That's the last days. Here it becomes the tempter. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and you always think kindly of us, longing to see just as we also long to see you. The word for gospel is evangelion, but here he uses the term the good news. Now in Paul's mind, they would have been two words for the same thing. Habashotatovot. In other words, the good news of salvation that brought blessing to these pagans. The fact that they stayed grounded in their faith after he left them in the face of persecution, that was good news back to him. You understand? There's a play, there's a play on thought in the original text. He brought them the good news of salvation, but the fact that they stayed faithful under persecution with so little discipleship, that's the good news to him. And this can happen. The Lord can keep even newly saved people unto himself. They're the Lord. No one snatches them out of my hand. If there's a situation where you have a newly saved person, Satan cannot touch the new creation. The good shepherd carries the lambs. Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. If somebody really prays to receive Jesus, and through no fault or choice of their own, they have no opportunity for discipleship or fellowship in the face of hostile circumstances, the Lord will keep them. There are many accounts of believers in Muslim countries, until not many years ago, Roman Catholic countries, where they had no fellowship, no discipleship, but the Lord kept them. One of my friends is Victor Smadja. Victor Smadja is the elder of the Messianic Fellowship, the oldest one in Jerusalem. He's the senior elder. He baptized my wife. He's brethren. He baptized my wife, and he conducted my daughter's bat mitzvah at the garden tomb. Some of you were there, I think. Was anybody here when we did it? Yeah. And what happened? Well... Victor, when he was saved, he was a Jew in Tunisia, North Africa. Everybody was Muslim, except for the French colonialists. There was a small group of them who were Roman Catholic. Victor got saved in a very unique way. He was born again. 
Now, I knew many people. I know I've met many Jewish people who thought that they were the only Jew who believed. They were in a certain place, some city somewhere, and they thought that they were the only Jew who was a believer. I've, I've met a number of Jews over the years who, who, as far as they knew, they were the only Jew who believed. Victor Smarja, as far as he knew, he was the only person who believed. He went, when he, when he came to know the Lord, he went to the Roman Catholic, the French Catholic priests and tried to tell them. And it was obvious to their, him that they didn't know what he knew and believe what he believed and hadn't experienced what he experienced. He didn't even know what born again was, but he knew he was born again. Everybody was a Muslim, a Jew, or a Roman Catholic. He thought, well, he was the only Jew believed that was born again. He thought he was the only person who was born again. He had nothing, he knew nothing for years. Years. But the Lord kept him. Nobody snatches out of his hand. And there are many, many other cases like that. Christians who suffered under the communists, they, they got saved through an underground radio broadcast or something like this. They had no fellowship, they had nothing. And the Lord kept them. Nobody can snatch out of his hand. That's what the thing really means. It's not talking about an eternal security that says you can go out and say that you can't backslide. If you're really saved, that's not what that means. But it does mean nobody can snatch out of his hand. And of course, that came into being here with these believers in Thessalonica. And this is good news back to Paul. But again, he puts this in an eschatological context. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were confident about you through your faith. The thing that kept Paul going psychologically and emotionally was the fact that these other guys were doing so good. I can tell you, I get very little joy from the ministry. I don't like being in ministry full-time. I'd be much happier if I had a suitable secular profession and I was just a, a home group leader in a church teaching Bible studies to ten people in, in my house on a Wednesday night and going witnessing with my church on Saturday. I'd be much happier. I'd be much happier. I don't like doing this. Most of this stuff gives me no joy, and it gives me a lot of misery most of the time, especially the family separation and always having to fight with other Christians because of my stands on certain issues. I do not like it. I don't like this. I never wanted to do this. I never asked for this. And if the Lord let me out of it, gave me something suitable, I would get out of it. There's one exception. When I see people that I've led to Christ going on with Jesus, that covers a multitude of misery. <laughs> When I see people that I've led to Christ, leading others to Christ, like Anthony Simon in Jerusalem, that covers a multitude of misery. I know what Paul's talking about. For we thank God, for, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. In other words, I taught you what I could, I gave you what I could. I want to give you more, and I'm looking for the time I could do it. But Satan has kept me away from you. Yet God kept you faithful. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus, our Lord. Now again, in the original underlying thought, it's pointing to the deity of Christ. Adonai. Curios in Greek. Direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you. Notice it always puts the love of other believers before it does the love of the others. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father in all 
the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Do you see that? Coming with his saints. Jesus is not coming for a triumphant church. Jesus is coming with a triumphant church that has been raptured and resurrected. You see what it says? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. No, he is not coming for a church that has kingdom dominion on this earth. He's coming with a church that's been removed from this earth. Then comes the kingdom dominion, Daniel 72. Now again, the people who are caught up in these errors that we see today have to spiritualize the text. There is no allegorical interpretation in epistles unless the epistle spells it out or assumes the readers know what it means. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you and our Lord Jesus that you re receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, and each of you knows how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles do, who do not know God, that no man transgress and defraud his brothers in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no one, you, you have no need to anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Notice verse 9, one is your teacher who's in heaven. You're taught by God. They don't have a pastor teaching them every week now. But God, Paul knows the Holy Spirit is showing these people. For indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business. Work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. In other words, what he's hinting at is don't give the unsaved any reason to persecute you. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. We'll pick it up there in a moment. Let's look at what he said until now. One of the things he's dealing with, the lustful passions, is this. Hieros, gamos. We just talked about this on the Matthew 16 tapes. Temple prostitutes. It was a big thing in Greek and Roman religion and culture. Vestal virgins of pagan Rome and the rest of it. It was socially acceptable, as was bisexuality. Now, notice what he says, don't be like the Gentiles. These people were Gentiles. What's he talking about? Well, he's saying here the same thing he said in other words in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Not replacement, but grafting in. In a sense, in a spiritual sense, believers are no longer among the ethnon, the nations, but are called out of every nation. That's what the church means in the Ecclesia. The way the Jews were called out from among the nations. And so, he's saying this. 
But he's talking about living a holy life, etc., etc., etc. And he builds up to this. But now he begins talking about what we really want to get at. We do not need to be, uh, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. As we talked about last night, the Bible never speaks about the death of a Christian as death, but always as sleep. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ, who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That is the same trumpet you have in First Corinthians, and it has some kind of a typological correspondence for the last trumpet in Leviticus on Yom Kippur. Then we who are alive shall be caught up. The word rapture comes from that term caught up. Together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. What are the words we have to comfort one another with? When you see somebody you love who's a Christian die, what should you comfort that person with? The rapture and the resurrection. Same event. What's being taught today? The raptures of judgment. Mike Pickle. The raptures of the devil. Rick Joyner. The raptures of fantasy and a myth. Gerald Coates. You understand what's happening here? The thing that's supposed to comfort us, there's no comfort in it. The source of comfort is taken away. You think of a dead loved one. If they're a Christian, you can think of them as being asleep. That's a source of comfort. Is having a nice long nap. That's a source of comfort. Take away the comfort. We meet the Lord in the air. We look at this tonight in types of the rapture. Then he begins talking. This draws on Jeremiah 8. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Notice these were brand new believers. Newly saved people. Yet when it came to figuring out the time of the end times and the sequence of events, even these newly saved people had no need for Bible studies to explain basic things. We do. What does that tell you about the state of the church? For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The tribulation, right? Darkness. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. The, the Essenes in the Qumran literature have the same kind of theme. This was the main theme of the Jews at the time. The sons of darkness, the sons of light. But you had similar parallelisms in Greek apocalyptic as well as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and be sober. Remember we talked about that last night? 
Repeatedly Peter said it. Repeatedly Paul says it. For those who sleep through their sleeping at night and those who get drunk, get drunk at. When spiritual darkness comes, what are people going to be doing? Getting drunk. You understand what's happening to the church? You understand what's going on? See, those who understood this, that's why they hit the roof when this happened. They understood what it meant a few years ago. And they haven't sobered up since. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. And here he does a pray on the armor as an Ephesian. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, the distinction, all this suffering and affliction, philipsis, that's the wrath of Satan, not the wrath of God. This is the third time he draws that distinction in, in Thessalonians, same as Matthew does. Now, let's look at this. When we're saying peace and safety, destruction will come. Let's go back again to Jeremiah 8. Verse 11, and they hear the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Now, the word peace doesn't only mean an absence of conflict. Most of you know from other tapes, shalom comes from the Hebrew word, leshalem. Fill, pay, fulfill. We have shalom, because Jesus came to leshalem, to fill us with his spirit, to fulfill the law, and to pay the price for our sins. You can be in the biggest conflict of your life and have shalom. Or you can have no conflict and lack it. My peace I give you, not peace is the world. We go by the Hellenistic, the Greek definition, which is an absence of conflict. That's not the real definition. As God reckons it. Now what happens when all this happens? Therefore they shall fall among those who fall and all this stuff. Were they not ashamed because of the abomination they'd done? They certainly were not. They didn't know how to blush. What do you see happening today? Did you ever watch the 9 o'clock service? On, on, do you remember the 9 o'clock service? During the Toronto thing? The, the people with the smoke machines and the strobe lights dancing topless in the church? In Sheffield? It was on national news? Homosexuals meeting in the community? I don't know how to blush. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There'll be no grapes, none of this. Why are you sitting around? Assemble yourselves. Let, let us go to the fortified cities. Let us perish there, because the Lord our God has doomed us and given us poison water to drink, for we've sinned against the Lord. We waited for peace, but no good came, for a time of healing, but behold, terror. You've heard me say many times that Satan has two modes of attack in Revelation, right? The dragon and the... The dragon is the persecutor. The serpent is the deceiver. Look at verse 17. Behold, I'm sending serpents against you. Otters to which there's no charm, and they will bite you, declares the Lord. These things you see happening are not simply deceptions of Satan. They are judgments from God. Now, this is important in understanding the background of Second Thessalonians. Therefore, the Lord himself will send a deception. He sends these deceivers. Oh, they're, they're, they're serpents. These men are serpents. They're absolutely serpents. No question. They're total deceivers, teaching things from hell, total spiritual seduction. 
From the devil, yes, but God sends them as a judgment on his people. That's what you want. That's what you can have. Now, when this happens, they're saying, peace, peace, peace. Even these newly saved Thessalonians, you know full well what it's going to be like, Paul says. When they're saying peace and safety, then the end will come. These newly saved people understood this. Today, I see people saved 20, 30 years don't understand this. People that I could not possibly account for how. Ministers, pastors, how they can't obviously see this, but these newly saved people could. You know why? Because these newly saved people had a right heart. The good shepherd carries the lambs. They might not have had much background. They didn't know the book of the Lord, but they knew the Lord of the book. When you see people going this way, it means their relationship with Jesus is wrong. They may have heard all the Bible studies, been to seminary. It's all head knowledge. What good is the head knowledge without the heart knowledge? Now, Paul was saying, you guys, you have the heart knowledge. Now I want to come and give you the head knowledge, but Satan's hindering me. You understand, God wants you to have the head knowledge, but what good is it without the heart knowledge? I want to come and give you the head knowledge, he says. But at least you have the heart knowledge. That'll see you through it till I can get there. Today, people have had head knowledge, head knowledge. Look what they do. Newly saved people. I know newly saved people who have seen some of these videos like we have on the table of this old this tuberculosis stuff. These are people newly saved and they saw right through it. When you see people who don't see through it, it is not primarily due to a lack of spiritual maturity or knowledge. It's due to having a wrong relationship with God. And again, just in this text alone, three times he says, get sober. Put on the breastplate, put on the helmet, get ready for war, for God's not destined us for wrath. Once again, the distinction. Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together before him. Again, the rapture and resurrection are the same event. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very their work, live in peace with one another. Obviously, what Paul did, we're told, is he sent them Timothy. Now, the background of this is Acts 17:13, where the Jews began turning the Gentile authorities against the apostles. Because these Gentiles who were getting saved were seen as becoming believers in the Jewish God without going through the circumcision process. Okay? Now let's move on to his second epistle, to the same church. Again, these things were written very close to each other. In this epistle, there is another problem. The one we mentioned this morning. There were people who figured because the end was coming soon and because the Lord was going to come, there was no reason to worry about the practical things of life, like working. And again, the, 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 the worst example we have today is Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, they've, they've had people that... Uh, Mormons will try to get their people educated. Jehovah's Witnesses pretty well don't encourage that kind of thing. They're basically un uneducated people. Um, what's the point? The world's going to end. Now, that same mentality can and does get into the church. 
what's the point of this? The Lord's going to come. Once again, plan for the future. Don't plan on it. This epistle opens the same exact way. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Same greeting. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, and it's only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged, and he goes on. Verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Same thing. Wrath of Satan, not wrath of God. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. What's he doing? Those who afflict you, God will afflict them. He repeatedly comes back to the same distinction between the wrath of Satan and the wrath of God. And Matthew 24 has to be interpreted in this light. So it continues. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Yeshua, Jesus, shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. He's coming to deal out retribution to persecute the church, right? Verse 8, verses 7 and 8, he's coming to deal out retribution to those who persecute the church. Let's go back to Matthew 24 and look at it. They'll deliver you to tribulation in verse 9. They will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations on account of my name. Many will fall away and deliver one another up. And the story goes on, the persecution, the difficulty, the 70 AD stuff, etc. Immediately after the tribulation of those days in verse 29, these signs happen. Then the sign of the sun appears. The Son of Man, they see him, and what happens? He gathers his elect, and the others are saying, Hide us. Hide us. The tribes of the earth will mourn. Same as Revelation. Same thing. Perfect. The narrative of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, in light of Paul's writing. Now he gets really down to, as it were, what people would call the brass hats. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now he's getting real specific. The most specific thing the Bible says about the rapture. It's not the clearest type. The clearest type is the transfiguration. That's tonight. But the clearest, uncomplicated, most straightforward statement about the end is this. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming, the parousia, of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. That word gathering together is epithunagage. Epi in Greek, around, like Perry is around Epi from the, from the, around from the center, like an epicenter of an earthquake. Epi synagogue, like synagogue, assembling, gathering. That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure. Don't be upset. Don't be disturbed. Either by a spirit, you can have things disturbing your spirit. You can have a direct 
spiritual influence that's affecting your spirit in a negative way. Or a message or a letter as if from us, not from us, but as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There were people saying that they missed the rapture, this kind of thing, that it was a past event, what about those who died, and so on. Look what it says. Now that today, the people who are given to preterism, they are saying that the day of the Lord virtually has come in 70 AD. That Matthew 24 was fulfilled in the first century. Well, as I've often pointed out, the Olivet Discourse is not just Matthew 24, it's 24 and 25. Did Jesus separate the sheep from goats in 70 AD? Did he give people their reward based on what they did with their talents in 70 AD? Did he return for the bride in 70 AD? No. It was a partial fulfillment that prefigures the ultimate fulfillment. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasia, falling away, apostasy, comes first. There will be those Depart from me, I never knew you. Here we are not talking to the ones whose names were never in the book of life to begin with. We're talking about the ones that Jesus said, I will take your name and blot it out. The apostasia. Not those who were never saved, but those who fall away. Once again, as we looked at in our earlier session, a third of the stars are swept from heaven in one fell swoop, right? Big falling with the Antichrist. Unless it comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called object or object of God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Prefigured, of course, by Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Let's go back to Matthew 24. Just before this time, when the Son of Man comes in verses 27 to 29, or 27 to 30, and just before the rapture in verse 31, look what happens. Verse 26. If anyone, if therefore they say to you, he's in the wilderness, don't go, or behold, he's in the, in the rooms, do not believe them. Now he gives his most specific warning. Verse 23. Here is the Messiah. Definite article. Don't believe it. Okay. Do you understand the ramifications of you are God being taken out of context? Or you don't, you don't have a God in you, you are one? Or you're not looking at Morris Cirillo, you're looking at Jesus Christ? You understand what it's getting at? It gives that kind of warning just before the Lord returns to his elect. The apostasia is closely associated with the pinnacle of the Antichrist's power. What does it say? With regard to the coming of our Lord and our gathering together, Jesus cannot come until the Antichrist is revealed to the faith. Right? The most direct, the most literal, the most straightforward thing, he can't come to take us out of here until we know who that guy is. You have to begin allegorizing, you have to begin 
Look at Revelation 13, verse 18. Here is wisdom, that him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. What unsaved people have understanding of wisdom? Who's it talking to? In Revelation was told, the book of Revelation is written primarily to the church, not to Jews. If anybody had wisdom, they wouldn't... <laughs> According to the preacher view, the people who have wisdom will believe in Jesus not even be here. <laughs> it makes no sense. If you need wisdom to identify the Antichrist, and the people with the wisdom aren't here when he shows up, <laughs> it's what they said, it's what Dr. Wolbert from Dallas Seminary says, we can't, we teach this, but we can't prove it. There's too many logical contradictions for us to say that the Bible doesn't teach it. That's what Dr. Wolbert said. This is their own guy. Dr. John Wolford, President of Dallas Theological Seminary, neither pre post tribulationism nor pre tribulationism is the explicit teaching of scriptures. The Bible does not in so many words say so. Dr. Richard Mayhew, from John MacArthur's place, the Master Seminary in California, in his thesis, what does he say? Neither a pre tribulation or a post tribulation rapture is taught directly in scripture and pre-tribulationists still have problems to solve in regard to their position. He goes on to say, however, that perhaps the position, perhaps the position of pre-tribulationism is correct, although its proof at times has been logically invalid, or at least unconvincing. The very guys teaching it admit that it's not logical. If you need wisdom to know who this guy is, and the people who have wisdom are the Christians who follow Jesus and believe the Bible, and they're already gone, and who's it talking to? Interpret the complex in light of the simple. The doctrine of the tribulation saints is greatly overstated. It has as much to do, probably more, but at least as much, to do with the Jews as it does the Gentile, predominantly Gentile church. Those who are left. The Lord can't come till we know who this guy is. Do I believe the Lord can come tonight? If God forbid you die or I die before our time, the Lord came for us. Wouldn't be so bad for us, but it would be sad for our loved ones. The Lord came for us. Yeah, of course I believe Jesus can come tonight. Of course I believe that. An airplane can crash into this building in ten minutes from now. Of course I believe the Lord can come tonight. Do I believe in imminency? Yes. In the personal sense? Absolutely. None of us knows how long we're going to be here. But do I believe the rapture can happen tonight? No. There are many antichrists. We have to know who these ultimate two beasts in Revelation are. And the problem is there will be so many of them. In the beginning, he will, like I said last night, just look like another one to the discerning. And he won't look like one at all to the undiscerning. <laughs> Lord, is it I. He'll just look like another one to the discerning. And he won't look like one at all to the understanding. Jesus is our wisdom. But he who has the wisdom understand what it means. We'll have to have wisdom to understand the abomination of desolation. If we're not here, who, who's going to have wisdom? Unfaithed people don't have any wisdom. They have the world's wisdom. They don't have God's wisdom. Jesus is our wisdom. Let no one deceive you. The idea that the Lord can come before we know who this guy is is a deception. People who are teaching it are deceived. I'm not saying they're now motivated. I'm not saying they're now motivated. Some of my closest friends believe and teach this, but they're wrong. 
He opposes himself from every so-called God. We talked about what it meant already. The Sekusa Nesha man, you can get the Antichrist tape for verse 4. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Now he's talking here to newly saved people that he only had a few weeks with. In the first century. So it's the first century church, newly saved people he only had a few weeks with. Now, the last century church, people that have been saved for years, oh, we don't read the book of Revelation in my church. You realize that churches have never had a Bible study on Daniel or Revelation? You realize that people have been saved 30 years, have never had a teaching from Revelation or Matthew 24? How many people have encountered churches like that, where it just was never discussed, never taught, never emphasized, they never had a teaching? Put your hand up. Look. These guys were newly saved and they were taught about the return of Jesus right from where it goes. That was 2,000 years ago. Now we're 2,000 years closer. <laughs> we're not teaching people that have been saved for years. These guys were saved for a couple of weeks when they knew it. And then, what does that tell you? You know that what we sing to now, for that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. With all powers and what did he warn about last night? Signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. Now understand what it's talking about saved here. I had another minister in New Zealand a few years ago, an Elam guy, who said, that's that meant for other people, it's already saved. Look, context, it's the apostasia. He didn't understand salvation was past, present, and future. Past is justified, present is sanctified, and future is redeemed. Lift up your head, your redemption draws nigh. He who endures to the end shall be saved. He, didn't, he couldn't even understand the basic Bible teaching about salvation. And he didn't even know how to use exegesis to look at the passages that are about falling away. No, and this was a pastor. He said, well, he's just doing his heart. When I challenged him, he had no argument. He just doing his heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Apostasia. These men are dangerous. Some of them are quacks. You know, it's like somebody practicing surgery without, a, without any medical training. Some of them are just quacks. Others are just this. Now look what it says. He who restrains him. There are three things that restrain evil. One is human Government, ordained by God with Noah, affirmed by the New Testament, Romans 13, etc. The Bible says, pray for your leaders that we may lead a peaceable life. You may not like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. I don't like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, but if they're not being influenced by my prayers, they will be influenced by something else. Two, a gospel preaching church. Three, the Holy Spirit. On the Territorial Spirits tape, the Spiritual Warfare tape, we talk about what happened in Germany. The ancient Teutonic religions of the Huns, 
the butchers that the Germans were in pre-Christian Germany. Once higher criticism and liberal theology came out of Kubik in Germany and replaced biblical Protestantism, the Germans just went back doing what they did in pre-Christian Germany, didn't they? Human government goes into the hands of Satan. In the end, the Antichrist gets control of the government in Daniel. Second, the gospel preaching church. That comes to an end. One, the gospel is perverted by the false church and discredited. And two, work while you have the light. Night comes, no man can work. That leaves the Holy Spirit. When you are born again, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. You're already with Christ and new creation. As we said, when you get baptized, the objective truth becomes a subjective experience. That is the same for spirit baptism. He who is inside of you, it now becomes a subjective experience. It may happen at the time of water baptism, may happen before water baptism, may happen at the time of salvation. The book of Acts gives all combinations. John 20, please. Verse 22, and when he said this, he breathed on them. Now, that's the breath of God, isn't it? It said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus died, rose from the dead, and breathed his Spirit into them, making them a new creation. But then what does he tell them after that? Look at the end of Luke's Gospel. I'm sending forth the promise of my Father. Stay in the city till you call the power from on high. Go wait for the Holy Spirit. So he promises in John 14 and John 16. When did they get the Spirit? When he breathed on them after he rose from the dead, or took their sin and rose from the dead, or on the day of Pentecost? It was indwelling when he breathed on them. It was outpoured on the day of Pentecost. You can be born again and not be baptized in water. You can be born again and not filled with the Spirit. I will never leave you or forsake you. God will never take his Spirit from his people indwelling. But Pentecost is reversed. You hear what I said? He convicts the world concerning sin. A time comes when God's Spirit will not strive with man. Now, He will never take His Spirit from the hearts of His people. He will take it from the world. He goes back behaving the way He did in the Old Testament, the God of anger and wrath. It's taken from the world. As bad as it is, somehow the Holy Spirit is still convicting people of sin. It is still uniting and empowering the church to preach the gospel. It is still restraining, in some measure, the powers of wickedness. It will be taken, not from our hearts, but from the world. Jesus left John 14, John 16. What did he say? I'm going to send you the paraclete, the comforter. I'm going to go and send the Spirit. The Spirit goes and sends Jesus. You understand? There's a gap period. The time between the Ascension and the day of Pentecost is a type of it. Now, there are a number of things which are types of that period. We have it on the future history of the church. No, he will never take his spirit from us, but from being outpoured on Jesus and onto the church and empowering the church, the church will not exist in its present state. It will not exist in the sense that it has existed from Pentecost. The world has had its chance. Now God is going to intervene on behalf of his own people, and he's going to turn his grace back to Israel and the Jews in the time of Jacob's trouble. That he will do. He will intervene and show his grace to those who are his, 
and he will turn, then turn his grace back to Israel and the Jews. That he will do. But as far as the world, they've had it. It's taken. There are many antichrists, but this ultimate manifestation of Satan is being suppressed, restrained. Remember when Jesus saw Satan, saw the comet come down from heaven? Now Satan is cast down? At that point, Judas became demon-possessed. That's how the Antichrist is going to be. Son of perdition. A virtual incarnation of Satan. It's being restrained. Until this happens, and when that happens, boy, uh, the biggest backsliding the church has ever seen. But it will be an obvious backsliding. You see, already the church is backsliding. Then it will just be official. One third of the stars. Forget it. The apostasia. The Lord cannot come until this happens. Until you know it. I explained it this way a number of times. In physics, we have vectors. Let's call this alpha in Greek. Let's call this omega in Greek. Okay. You have something called derivatives. Miles per second. Can you square that? Miles per second per second. Miles per second per second per second. The closer you get, the faster you approach the omega point. His first coming was like this. Most of the prophecies about his first coming, you've heard me say, were fulfilled in a 35-year period. Most of those were fulfilled in a three-and-a-half-year period. That's why Satan demands the three-and-a-half years. He wants equal time. Most of those prophecies were fulfilled in a one-week period. And most of those were fulfilled in a period of three days. In other words, the closer we get to the return of Jesus, it'll be the same. Prophecy will be fulfilled at a faster and faster pace. The closer we get to his return, the faster it happens. Look at the world. Look at the church. How quickly did a false peace come to the Middle East? That's not over yet. Watch Israel. How quickly did the Iron Curtain come down? Nobody who grew up in the post-war era ever would have thought that could happen so quickly. How quickly did the British Empire collapse after the Second World War? When my grandparents left this place, the sun never set on the British Empire. Now it sets every 24 hours. How quick? Don't you think America and Japan, Japan, look how quick Japan, nobody ever thought Japan would go down this fast. Look at the church. Do you think guys like Jack Hayford would have gone in with defending Benny Hinn? Or Billy Graham would be putting people in Roman churches? Or J.I. Parker would be saying, what if this guy who says Muslims can go to heaven is right? That's how fast. The closer we get to it, the faster prophecy happens. Yes, there are things which still have to happen. But they can happen very, very quickly. 
Most of his prophecies first coming were fulfilled in a week. Hundreds of prophecies prophesied over a period of centuries. And most of them were fulfilled in a few days. His return will be the same way. Same way. Now that is imminency, isn't it? Not imminency is perhaps people think he can come tonight. Before he can come soon. The economies of the world go down the drain and somebody comes along giving him a way out, give us back our standard of living we used to have. Don't you think the world would go for it? If Japan and the Far East begin dragging the rest of the world down the economic doldrums with it and America begins losing what it's... Don't you think that somebody gets... And if you speak against this guy, it'll be like going out and beating up Mother Teresa. Not that she didn't have it coming. Take it off the tape. <laughs> Anybody who says that the only converts these people to these better Hindus had a problem. Now it gets really, really difficult. If you don't love the truth in verse 10, you don't love Jesus. Revelation 13, the same thing. Who does he deceive? Those who don't love the truth. If you do not love the truth, you do not love Jesus. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus is the word, the logos, the the mamre, the incarnate word. If you don't love this, you don't love him. When you see people denigrating the Bible, that's legalism. What they're doing, they're not rejecting you or your doctrine. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. They are rejecting Jesus Christ. That's what we talked about last night. Most men's love will grow cold. Why? Because of lawlessness, antinomianism. We don't want the Bible. We want to be free. Free what? For this reason... God will send a deluding influence on them so they might believe what is false. Remember Jeremiah? Sends the serpent. Remember King, remember Micaiah? King of Ahab? God will send a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophet. He sees the judgment. Zechariah 11, Antichrist is called God's agent. That they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. It may not always be apparent, but when you see people who do not love the Word of God, they are taking pleasure in wickedness. It may not always be apparent, but it will eventually become apparent. We had the, 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 the Ian Bilby situation in, in, in New Zealand. The, 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 he's the Wynn Lewis of, of, he's the Colin Dye Wynn Lewis of New Zealand. This is in the newspapers over there, not gossip. The whole time he's pushing Gerald Coates' prophecies, He's pushing Benny Hinn, pushing Toronto big time. He was fooling around with women in the church. People went to him, showed him, tried to pray, didn't want to know. He did not love the truth. What was he doing? Taking pleasure in wickedness. You, the Robert Tilton, the guy on TV, the divorced, remarried three, four times. All the Robert's son, the same thing, got rid of his wife, has another one. You'll see these people who don't love the truth are into immorality. It may not always be obvious or conspicuous, but you can be absolutely sure when people don't love the Bible, there is some kind of immorality, some kind of sin, some kind of wickedness. They're taking pleasure in wickedness. Because when you read this book, you get convicted. 
do what I do. Every so often I pick up the book of Proverbs and read it before I go to sleep. Say <laughs> you wake up. <laughs> it convicts, doesn't it? You see all the things wrong in your own life, your own attitude, your own walk with the Lord, the secret sins of your heart, the wrong desires of things you've done, things you've said, stupid things, failures to be faithful. It convicts, doesn't it? Well, that's the Holy Spirit getting us ready to meet Jesus. You get rid of this. <laughs> what is that? Taking pleasure in wickedness. I warned and warned and warned, and so did other people. You know, carnality will lead to immorality. Or oh, when the TV was going on, this is, even some of the stuff on the videos obviously have sexual connotations to it. But we always give thanks to God for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God's chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. In other words, what is the truth? Thy word is truth. No truth, no sanctification, no sanctification, no salvation. No truth, no Bible, no doctrine. Doctrine is the teaching of Jesus. Paul Crouch on TV in America denounced doctrine. Don't talk to me about doctrine. I heard somebody at the Assemblies of God meeting once stand up and say, a minister say, the basis of our fellowship is not the Word, it's Jesus. Jesus is the Word. What is he talking about? He's making a distinction that God didn't. And there was no more than a half dozen people who knew he was babbling through his nose. The others thought it was right. Table. No truth, no sanctification, no sanctification, no salvation. Without holiness, no man will see God. Well, to all of us. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Notice the tradition here. The Roman church has built a lot on this, saying we can teach traditions. First of all, it was what was written or what was spoken by the apostles. They have to claim apostolic succession. <laughs> Where does the Bible ever say that the Pope is the success of the apostles? It doesn't. Whatever tradition there was, it was inspired. It was directly from the apostles, not from any man or pope. Now may our Lord Yeshua, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Then he goes on asking them to pray for him and for his ministry. That God will, and pray that God will protect them from the evil one. And then he goes on dealing with some of the problems. Verse 10. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. There are people who will pray off other Christians. There are people who pray off other Christians. Now here was a specific situation where they thought because the Lord was coming, why bother getting a job? You know, it's those who work hard at preaching and teaching the Word of God who are supposed to be paid for the ministry. You see you guys standing on a platform giving you a lot of waffle week after week. I'm just going to share what's on my heart because there's nothing in his brain, all that stuff. 
The Bible says study to show yourself approved. If you're not studying, you're not approved, you don't have a right to get paid. Why should, I talked to somebody on the Cornelia tape. Why should you go to work in an office or a factory or a hospital or wherever you work and pay an offering or a tithe to some jerk who doesn't work as hard as you do? If that guy is not studying to show himself approved before God, if he's not teaching you the word of God, he doesn't deserve to be paid. Now it says those who do are worthy of double honorarium, money. Those who do, but the other ones don't deserve to be paid. Ask yourself, are you getting fed in your church? If you're not getting fed, you shouldn't be paying a tithe or an offering there. You should, would, you, would you eat in McDonald's and pay the bill in Burger King? <laughs> no. you don't owe, you don't, if you eat a Big Mac, you don't owe Burger King anything. They were up to me. <laughs> you know, once John Zari and myself were going to go on a diet together, Burger King says was down 40. Now, such persons, we command in verse 12, and exhort in the work of the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. You know, there's people running around living undisciplined lives in verse 11 who are acting like busybodies. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of the man, do not associate with him, but he may be put to disgrace, to disgrace. Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. In the last days, our testimony is going to come under very heavy scrutiny. Very heavy scrutiny. Some heavy scrutiny already. These two epistles deal more with the rapture and the return of Jesus than any other epistle. They're the clearest teaching on the subject we have. And it always comes back to the same thing with the Perusia. One, Philippi, wrath of Satan is totally different from the wrath of God. Expect this. Expect to escape this. Expect this. Expect to escape this. That same distinction, we read the Olivet Discourse in light of it. We don't go through the great tribulation of God's wrath, but we still experience the hour of Satan. Okay. Second, the Son of Perdition. There's many of them. But these ultimate two characters are going to be something. They're really going to be something. No, you're not going to leave this place until you know who they are. And you're not going to know who they are unless you have the Lord's wisdom. Paul was teaching this stuff to newly saved people. Today, we don't even teach the book of Revelation to people that have been saved for years. 
know what frightens me more than anything else? It's not the wrath of Satan. It's not the son of perdition. It's not the deception in the church. It's that so many Christians aren't ready for it. That their leaders don't teach them because their leaders don't even have a clue. He's teaching us to newly saved people. Here, this is a whole level of Bible teaching above anything most Christians in this country have ever heard. That's what frightens me. All of this stuff frightens me. But when I go back to the Word, I'm not frightened. The reason I'm not frightened is because of what Paul also says. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope and grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work. He says, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You believe this book, you'll have nothing to worry about. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.